1: it's time for an episode of the imbalance history of rock and roll that we have talked about for quite some time i'm ray Coop. i'm marcus goldman and this week we delve into the theory of devolution bro the deevolution of the human species predicted many moons ago by the casals and the mothers boys how are we doing so far
2: <laughs> uh we're going backwards
1: are we not men? We are,
2: Devo. Indeed,
1: They make more and more sense to me all the time, brother.
2: Do they? It's uh, pretty uh, contradictory throughout. I mean, the whole concept if you ask each member the same question and they're in different rooms about a concert, about anything Devo based, you will four completely different answers as if you're talking to four completely different people not associated at all. And it seems like that's been kind of the model since the beginning, but the whole Devo concept started pre-kent state kent state days of jerry cassell and uh, bob lewis a friend of the bands
1: and this is something i never knew and that is one of their friends jeffrey miller was one of the students that was killed at the kent state shootings back in 1970 i never knew this
2: yeah we're definitely going to get back to that because this was all before that happened and at that point they had still believed in that whole de-evolution concept, that devolution concept that will keep coming up. It was an idea that wasn't even supposed to be a band originally because they were art students. Mark Mothersbaugh is an insanely talented graphic artist. They just did all this crazy performance art and stuff. And the music kind of came out of this and devolved because they wanted to take the blues and rock and roll and soul and take... The soul out of all of that music and strip it down into a devolutionized sound. And some of their early inspirations included a 1948 Wonder Woman comic, a manuscript called the Jocko Homo Heavenbound manuscript was another part of their influence. There was also a book that played an impact on the whole Devo philosophy written supposedly by an ex-Nazi hiding in South America. The author, Oscar Kees whose name may or may not be a pun on Oscar. Kiss my ass. Wrote a book called the beginning was the end. And it basically spoke about humans evolving because we were brain eating apes. And this book along with some of the other stuff that they were doing at the time played a part in their whole philosophy which was being from Akron, Ohio, the rubber capital of the world. They were polymer real or plastic real and they wanted to prove that truth was a lie basically not real and that This technology and this advancement was actually devolving our brains. And the final and most Devo day in the world of Jerry Cassell was the day of the Kent State shootings. And he not only saw his friend die, but another woman that he was very close to was shot. And he, when he went over to the body, saw the exit wound hole in her body. Hmm. And that picture probably still haunts him to this day because it changed him and everybody there profoundly that day.
1: How could it not, really, if you think about it, Marcus? You are there, and we know of others in rock and roll who were there, either enrolled or on campus hearing the shots. It affects you in ways that no one can understand, and it was such a rare occurrence in 1970 that the effect was even more severe, I think. It affects you and it starts to seep into your art.
2: And yeah, the original art that they were doing that had the music to it wasn't really good music. There was something there, but it wasn't really good. It was sounds and it was sounds to make you feel uncomfortable again, pulling the soul out of the
1: music. Alright, I got a question for you, because we started talking about this, and I wanted to make sure that we talked about this while we were recording the podcast, and that is how many bands do you know, not to mention a band that got to the level of Devo, that had their original lineup for one performance only, and that's when Rod Reisman and Fred Weber were in the band playing drums and vocals if I'm right.
2: Yeah, that's way past the Kent State stuff, and after they had been like, they were all on separate paths, and like Mark Mothersbaugh was in a band with a young lady whose older brother Terry Hine was big in the Akron scene. Her name was Chris Hine, and she ended up going to England and forming the Pretenders. You had Joe Walsh and the Measles, which were big from this scene at this time. So you had all of these things merging and like swirling around each other. And then you had all of these parallels. You had Bob Lewis and Jerry Cassell doing their thing. And then you had Mark Mothersbaugh Chris Hine and other people doing their thing. You know, the Mothers Bob Brothers were doing their thing as well. And all these forces again were swirling. You had Cheetah Chrome and the Dead Boys up in Cleveland. I mean, this scene was really alive and really happening at this time. You had Pere Ubu and all of these bands playing. And so these guys come together eventually through Kent State and through the art program and doing performance art. And then they start performing together and so Slowly that lineup evolves and becomes the original lineup that plays for one show.
1: But we haven't talked about my question, which is do you know of any other group that had one gig with their original lineup and then went on to do stuff? Usually you play one gig, that's it, the band's over, or you know, you do a little few more gigs at least, you know? But you're talking about a band that had a rock and roll hall of fame type career. It must be weird being from Akron and being in that building over there. But I don't know of anybody else who played one gig with their original lineup, had two members leave and then however long it is till the next gig formed and went on to do the kind of things that they'd done kind of a, another weirdness in addition to the changing of the name because of dad's foster parents and all that stuff there's all these different elements that are i don't know when you put them all together they do kind of spin a strange tapestry
2: the lineup that really took off for the band was the two Mothersbaugh's, the two Casals and Alan Myers on the drums and he replaced Jim Mothersba who did the electronic thing to the drums and gave them all that weird metal clinky right. sounding But well, then let's they... talk
1: about Jim for a second because he was in there just a very little bit at the beginning then he goes on to work for Roland and help develop the electronic drums there and there obviously yep. they figured out what they were doing and I found out in my research that he was one of the people that was involved in the creation of midi and of course that's you know dave reguer now for all musicians especially keyboards Mm -hmm. and uh, now he runs a company called circle prime and they do advanced electronics some government work in there i think And, and still in cayuga falls in ohio so and he's like some genius dude when it comes to all this shit
2: all of the mother's boss were really, really fucking smart. And the Casals really smart. And Bob Lewis really smart. You had all these kids that were really intelligent. And none of them wanted to live the factory life that their parents were living in Akron, Ohio. They were artists and they wanted to break out from that and do artsy and creative things. And the mother's boss were lucky because their parents were so supportive of them. Their dad was super involved. And even participated in some of their film work and. And they started doing films about de-evolution, and that was included in their live music in those early days as they were developing their sound. They were doing some crazy stuff. They were coming out with these pig masks and like baby masks, and making people feel very uncomfortable on stage. And they sang with a sort of an intellectual base and potty mouth humor. There was a lot of potty humor. Uh, yes, there was their music, yes. and there still is. Yeah, you notice it, and it's very. Cult- culturally accurate and it's a very interesting perspective of how they grew up and what they grew up in in their town you feel it and they really wanted to be different and they really wanted to break out and they really wanted to strip down and take the soul out of the rock and roll and play it to the people
1: let me put it to you this way and i saw them on saturday night live and i saw what they were and I heard how they sounded i knew that this was not like suddenly out of nowhere this is some kind of an evolution and never really knowing until years later. You start reading and you find out how these things, that either you didn't know you were right about it, or you never knew about it. And I'm still learning about all these guys just getting ready to do this episode of the podcast, man. So cool.
2: It's a deep story. I mean, if we wanted to really go into detail, we could do a five or six episode series on Devo and the look at everything that's peripheral to them because that's also important in how Devo developed. And going back to 1963, very important for everybody in the band because they like eric perkheiser of the cramps was influenced by a tv guy late night who mixed the ravers with horror flicks called Goulardi. all right
3: babies cool it with the jaywalking over there after all i'll tell you the truth you can get hurt that way now remember connects Goulardi says live longer don't jaywalk
2: And he's come up in previous episodes when we have talked about Cleveland and he had an impact on their music and their sound and why they did what they did. And pretty impressive, all these connections.
1: Well, there's definitely a scene that's connected to Cleveland and Akron in that whole area. And the question I always have is, why did Chrissy Hine have to leave town to get fame and fortune started in London? It's not that she
2: had to, but she had this idyllic dream that the Akron train station would one day take her to London or Paris and romantically take her over to the rock and roll scene over uh-huh. there, which is what she really wanted to do. She always as a kid wanted to get over to London or Paris and do rock and roll and do music. And she did. And she I did know, but I
1: always did. thought she could have been like an American punk queen right there in Cleveland, you know?
2: She could have, but I think she was supposed to be over in England, and that's where, oh, her, yeah. oh, look, that's where her soul was. She That's had- a whole
1: nother discussion for another time, but we really need to talk a little bit about the evolution of the music that's part of devolution, because it's kind of plunky at first. You know, the tech wasn't so good. It was more lo-fo than hi-fi. but. They started pushing all that shit right from the very beginning of their sound. Well,
2: definitely. I mean, they tried to do things differently. And again, they stripped the soul out of the music and had to do that, whether it be using shorter staccato-y notes on the guitar that are sharper and jarrier, you know, and how they bang the keyboards and how they hit the sounds on the synthesizers, how they hit the bass, how the drummer hit the drums. All these things made a difference in stripping that sound down or sucking the soul out of that sound and making. making it a polymer version of reality, which is what they were trying to create with everything.
1: So how does an art project this abstract and bizarre end up getting in touch with the record world and becoming a band that not only records, but has an impact on art? And artfulness, too.
2: A lot of things happened. I mean, they went out to California. Joe Walsh was already out in California with the James gang. And he was working with Irving Azoff at that time, a young gunner in the business. So they had their tapes. And a lot of people at first were like, oh, these guys have a cool thing going, but they ain't so good. They got to work on their sound. They got to work on their songs. And Chaco Homo and Mongoloid were two of the early songs that they worked on. But like they started playing CBGBs and Max's in Kansas City. They were hitting all the Johns in LA. They did an AR record showcase and they bombed it because the label was like, oh, you guys are cool and you're doing weird stuff, but your songs aren't very good. And that was the AR and census in L.A. In New York, Stiff Records was into them and like Chris Blackwell flew to Akron in a monster snowstorm and hung out with them for a while to get Uh to know the band because he was into their sound. Richard Branson called them and so word was getting around after a big showcase that they did in New York as well as some of the ones in L.A. Keith Richards was at one of their showcases. Brian Eno, Robert Fripp, Frank Zappa were at one of their shows in New York. A drunk John Lennon walked up to Mark Mothersbaugh singing Uncontrollable Urge at one of their showcases. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: Man, I'm letting that picture sink
2: in. Oh, yeah. They had 5,045s in a van that they parked on the street in front of the venue in New York City. Bob and Jerry Casale's clothes got ripped off, left the records there. Because they had no value for what those 45s were worth, so... Uh and like they got their tapes to Iggy and Bowie and Iggy ended up liking their music and wanting to record some of it because they were doing some record work and Iggy was bored and he was like you got any music to listen to and Bowie handed him this tape they went to a show in Cleveland and one of Bob Casal's girlfriend gave Iggy Pop and David Bowie a tape in a promo package of theirs also gave it to Blondie the next day the dead boys helped get them to New York City because of their ties to Cleveland and at that point they were being managed by hilly so like all of these things were happening in a way that was fast and furious they were working hard they were working on their sound they didn't have a lot of confidence but they were slowly pulling it together and evolving into what they would become and they did it
1: as best i can tell from the the spark of all this that's kind of what got them into the studio with Eno and everything like that and a lot of good things fall into place and I don't know I just as one of a million kids out there on Saturday night live
0: ladies and gentlemen Devo
1: saw the crazy get-ups the hats and everything and started saying what the fuck is this and then they start doing this uh, uh, eh, uh, eh, uh, eh, uh, and'm like what the Familiar, but what the fuck is it? And of course, it was satisfaction. And of course, by the end, we started to understand the beginnings of devolution as a mass hysteria because the question was asked and answered here on Saturday Night Live. I went, All right, I'm gonna find out more about these guys. And you know, that wasn't so easy in the 70s.
0: In a truck,
2: Crazy. I remember seeing them on a rerun of Saturday Night Live. I was just getting old enough to stay up late, and it was like 79, I think it was. I saw a rerun of them, and we were just getting into these bands, and I can't remember exactly how it happened, but we were hooked right away. We were like, oh, my God, this is so different. I like it. And we started listening to it, going to Wax Tracks in Denver to buy the records when we could and have been listening to them ever
1: since. So we think we know a thing or 10 about Devo, but as we go forward and doing research, I overturned a few things and learned a lot about who they are and what they've done and where they've come from. The one thing that just blew my mind, even though I knew Mother's Ball, Mark being that particular Mother's Ball, had done so much in the area of television and film, but the one thing I didn't know is that he did all the music for every episode of the PBS show, Clifford the Big Red Dog. Uh, I know, I did not know that one either. And the, other, do- one, and the other one, other that pesky Crash Bandicoot music was him too. And there was a time when that was an earworm, you just, I wish I knew the guy that did this song, I uh, tell you. But it was Crash Bandicoot, one of the many games that he uh, did music for, Mark being he, Mark ball
2: He's pretty talented, and uh, the fact that, like, Chucky Finster, the Rugrats, is based on his character and his persona as well. Oh, I
1: didn't know that part of it. I knew that he was all up in the music and then integrated in a big way and all that. And think about that. The sounds that he injected into the childhood of kids who were the right age for the Rugrats, they heard some cool-ass shit, you know, in their cartoons.
2: That's all I'm saying. And he was fundamental in the Pee-wee's Playhouse theme song alongside so many other greats, including Dweezil Zappa, Danny Elfman, The Residents, Todd Rundgren, George Clinton, and Cyndi Lauper, who sings the theme song.
1: Well, that's a whole nother thing that I wanted to talk about. That's really at the top of the list of all his cool credits of stuff like that that he's done, right? Mm -hmm. Everything flows from there. And when Paul Rubens, Pee Wee, passed away recently, Mark said even he didn't know how sick he was. Paul kept it from everybody. Yeah, he really did. But right there under Pee Wee's Playhouse is Rugrats. And uh, he did Dumb and Dumber, you know, (laughs) the TV series, the music for Gross Point, one of those, you know, teen TV serials, all kinds of cool movies and TV shows and cartoons that he was part of through an amazing career, even while they were still doing Devo, he was doing this stuff. Absolutely. and
2: really just growing and spreading his legacy one of the soundtracks i really like of his is life aquatic with steve Zissou, which he did some of that say what my, <laughs> it was it was one of those weird bill murray movies about an underwater explorer and it just uh-huh. it very cool
1: but he also did happy gilmore
2: that's crazy
1: i know that's what i'm saying what an amazing side job want to talk about side hustles this is the ultimate side hustle and mark apparently is like a pretty cool dude and has uh, done a lot of musical stuff helped a lot of people along the way and by the way he hasn't hurt himself at all with i'm just looking at the list the stuff as i'm paging through and it's just good to see the good people doing good work creatively influencing young minds in a good way you know one thing is true i think is that we both kind of caught on to the band when it was the two Casals and the two mothers boss and Alan Myers on drums. And I got to tell you, if you look at the discography and we should do that a little bit in the second half, those albums with that core band are the ones that make the lasting impact for Devo. I think those five that
2: did those first bunch of albums, Mm -hmm. very important in their sound Alan Myers was with them till like 1986. And then I think David Kendrick stepped in to do drums after that. And then the band broke up in 91 and took a hiatus. But yes, what those five accomplished recording wise was momentous. And I know Brian Eno was involved with them at the beginning, but he really didn't do much because they wanted complete control of their project and they knew what they were looking for. So I think he really only helped them on some of the details and some of the little things, whereas I think he let them go full on and do their thing stepping in when he needed to
1: i think that relationship was very symbiotic give and take because there was a lot of brilliance coming towards him behind the glass there in the studio sometimes you just got to steer it in the right direction to make sure you capture it all but there's a core of songs in these albums that really make most people go yeah i like that oh i know that oh yeah oh yeah i, I forgot that one But Devo is still, all these years later after breaking up, even with the little, you know, come back in 2010, still memorable and influential. And you look at what they were doing when it comes to keyboards and technology when they first came on the scene and where things went quickly because of bands like them and so many others. And where we are today with all that stuff, it's easy to see why you have to put them on a list of bands That were cutting edge to change things in a good way, musically, for good.
2: They learned a lot from bands like Kraftwerk when their sound was evolving. In the book, We Are Devo by Jay Dillinger and David Giffels, there's a little segment in there talking about how important the release of Autobahn by Kraftwerk was and how much it influenced the growth and development of their sounds. And them all being smart guys, as smart as they were, they were going to try to deconstruct those sounds to figure out where they came from, how they made them and what they did with their instruments to make those sounds.
1: It's a lot, dude. Now, I want to take a second and ponder some of this. I got a fresh growler from Crooked Eye so we can have a cold one and then we'll Go come ahead. back and further discuss the theories of devolution here on the imbalance history
2: of rock and
1: roll. You know, says summer fun winds down. You know what never stops? What? The fun and games. And the great brews at Crooked Eye Brewery in the heart of Hapro. Always something good on the board and always something fun happening on stage, too.
2: Yeah, Crooked Eye is very active on social media. So if you're looking for a cool place that has good beers to hang out at, check out their Facebook page. Crooked Eye Brewery has a lot of activities going on, good beers, live music. It's all there.
1: All kinds of good entertainment on stage, and of course, the Crooked Eye Band, second Saturday of every month, packing the house and rocking it. Right there in the heart of Hatboro, always a good friend to be made at Crooked Eye Brewery. In that heightened presence on Facebook, you will find a lot of posts about what's just going up on the board and a lot of fresh board posts lately with all kinds of different stuff. Jeff's always trying something different back in the brew room. Go in and find out what we're talking about. It's Crooked Eye Brewery at York and Montgomery in the heart of Hapro in Pennsylvania. Tell a friend. Stop on by and make a friend.
2: Swing by and make it a Crooked Eye. and we are back a little less than we were before because we've devolved but we are going to continue to do our best to dude Devo. <laughs> i've been
1: i've been fucking devolving since 1978. you know uh, <laughs> when you wake up in the morning 85. and then it hurts a little bit well it's true it's part of the devolution of mankind you know true. you start putting in some artificial knees and things like that we're halfway to robocop you know what i'm saying
2: halfway maybe two-thirds
1: of the way yeah but i'm not getting the fucking visor all right deal speaking of mechanical <laughs> men i never knew there was an ep before the first album this mechanical man ep and the song i really love on there is blockhead even though the recording is kind of primitive
2: I still mm-hmm. like it. it's
1: really cool and they did it themselves they kind of set the trend on that
0: never be-
2: And I did not know about the Mechanical Man EP until beginning this research as well. I remember reading a long time ago in Trouser Press magazine about the Jocko Homo Mongoloid singles that they released or recorded in the very early days.
1: They were going major label while they were trying to go underground DIY at the same time, and they were making it work. They really were.
2: Their first album was recorded October of 77, February of 78 in Cologne, West Germany at Connie Plank Studio, as well as Different Fur in San Francisco, California. Brian Eno was the producer, and they got the title of their debut album from the 1920s movie Island of Pain, which was an early doing of the Island of Dr. Moreau, where in there, someone asked the question, are we not men? And then they added, we are Devo. And this album is excellent. It starts off with Uncontrollable Urge, which originally I think Iggy Pop wanted to record. They do a great cover of the Rolling Stones, I Can't Get No Satisfaction, which was performed on Saturday Night Live. Keith Richards actually really liked it. It is a stripped-down, de-bluesed version of the Rolling Stones classic.
0: I can't get no Saturday.
2: Junk, mongoloid, jocko, homo. Great song They
0: tell us that we lose our tails. Evolve out from this hill. I lose all just wind and sail Are we not men? We are devo. Are we not men? Devo.
2: You also have come back, Johnny. Sloppy. Too much paranoia. great music from them and a solid debut and definitely one that caught people off guard in the musical landscape of that time
1: as punk was exploding in America they were something else that was different and people were drawn to it immediately and I don't know about everybody else but I could say that I like the goofiness of it you know the red hats and the uh, the yellow slickers and the graphics on duty now for the future Now I didn't know about the original cover But all this stuff just made me laugh because, like, these guys know exactly what they're doing. The marketing people, whether it was Warners, management, didn't matter. It was all working. And I really like what Ken Scott did with them on duty now for the future. Me
2: too. Big producer who's worked with everybody big. Mahavish New Orchestra and so many others. And he put some uh, wild tunes together with the band like Blockhead. Their cover of Secret Agent Man, which is really fun. The Smart Patrol, Mr. DNA.
0: He's been with the world. I'm tired of the soap de He's been with the world.
2: check out their sense of humor. Listen to a bunch of these songs. Swelling, itching brain. (laughs) (laughs) And of course, it starts off with Devo's corporate anthem.
1: So they've got this thing rolling, doing pretty much what they want. And the next album really gets them in a groove. I would say really takes it to another level. They've been doing this. Now they're doing it pretty much by themselves with Bob Margulief helping them out in the studio. Girl, you want she sings on somewhere you can't see. She sits in the top
0: of the greener's tree. She sends out an aroma of under fine love. It drips on down in a mist of my ball. She's just a girl. She's just a girl. The girl you want. She's just a girl. She's just a girl. The girl you
1: want. Whip it. If that's all that was on this album, it would have been enough. But there's so much more.
2: Definitely. Also, you have freedom of choice. You have a uh, planet Earth. You have Don't You Know, that's pep, ton of love, snowball. And I remember seeing Whip It on MTV when they were first. And and Devo was getting a big amount of rotation at that point. They had "Girl You Want," "Freedom of Choice." Soundgarden does a cover of "Girl You Want" on the bad outtakes, and it's really insane. And they just added a dark dreariness to it and really punch you with it as well. again another solid effort from them and again they are devolving as they grow as a band
1: now one of the things i like about the next album new traditionalist because you know they're not quite the new romantics like some other bands they they have a new tradition and that includes embracing the sounds of new orleans in the case of alan Toussaint's working in the coal mine Label didn't want to put it on the record, so they issued it as a bonus single, is that right? And the B-side of the official single, and as you pointed out, it was submitted for the animated movie we've talked about, Heavy Metal, and kind of ended up saving, commercially saving... The album is a project being a hit from a band that was on fire and a B-side that wasn't on their album and actually worked to the advantage of the heavy metal soundtrack, right?
2: It's a great song, and it definitely gives you an Akron vibe in a way because of the factory work and the lifestyle with which those factory workers lived at that time where they grew up, and it just... A great tune but you also have another song that got a lot of play on mtv called through being cool you had beautiful world which was a very sarcastic look at how well we preserve our planet not
0: it's a beautiful
2: They were very on top of it politically, but they used a lot of tongue-in-cheek verbiage and style to get the point across. And hopefully you saw it. That was one of their goals.
1: It's good to have goals and, and other things that are, you know, positive moving forward things, Marcus. Even if you're devolving into apes, isn't that the complete devolution going back to being monkeys and trees?
2: They seem to embrace the fact that we are devolving the more advanced we become the more we devolve and in some ways there's some truth to it and <laughs> yeah can't argue with that
1: go watch the battle for the planet of the apes i just said
2: good point point.
1: <laughs> and the next album 1982s oh no it's devo i just love how they make fun of themselves every step of the way
2: They did receive a lot of backlash for this album because in the song I Desire, they used John Hinckley Jr. lyrics, and that was a bad, bad move. Not a good business decision, and one of the many times this band has shot themselves in the foot through the years.
1: How are those wounds healing up? They doing all right?
2: Uh, They're doing great, and they're doing fine, but still.
1: Look, people forget that punk is part of who they were. Especially back then, they kept it going longer than a lot of bands did, I'll say that, and stuck to their guns. They weren't fiercely political
2: like, say, a Sex Pistols was or, say, a Dead Kennedys was. They had political aspects to them, but they weren't as in-your-face about it, and they used intelligence and tongue-in-cheek and potty humor to get their points across.
1: Potty humor always works, man. Sells records. (laughs) Fucking shit.
2: Butt, poop, fart. (laughs) Done. <laughs> seriously somebody makes an album called butt poop fart it'll go platinum i'm writing that down hold on a second
1: <laughs> part of my devolution <laughs> part of their devolution is their next album which i don't even remember shout or anything know. that was going on there i know they have a hendrix cover on there but i don't really know much about that
2: are you experienced and at that point i don't know it just wasn't the same, I guess you could say. Same guys, though, right? Same guys, but maybe they didn't devolve, or maybe they devolved in a way I just wasn't feeling at 84. I just didn't dig that album. I know I have Oh No, It's Devo, but I can't remember anything off of Shout.
1: You know, we've talked about this happening at various points in rock and roll history, where you have so many choices that sometimes things aren't as prioritized as they were a couple of years before. Simple as that sometimes. That's what happened with me in this band. They stopped getting on my grill, so to speak. And I don't know, my Total Devo and and all that. I don't know. It's just they weren't really doing much. And I saw what Mark was doing by then. And I'm like, good for him. And everybody was touring the ones who wanted to be. And they still seem to be doing all right
2: and their impact on rock and roll will always be remembered so many bands cite them as an influence today and so many 90s bands claim them as an influence so
1: well you know they pretty much stuck together through all of it except for the change with david kendrick on drums for a few records and Mm -hmm. not a lot of bands do that either there's always two or three people that just say go fuck yourself at some point anyways i'm just happy to see that they're in the universe still spinning and still doing well all the brothers mother's ball and the casals you realize all the stuff that we're talking about today we're coming up on 50 years since it happened that's the thing keeps flipping me out more than the fact that mark Mothersbaugh, the guy who did all the music for the rugrats which my two younger kids grew up on also did the music for the movie cocaine bear that doesn't upset me so much is there more for them to devolve Is there more for them to do, or are they at that uh, total neutral place where they've done the thing and they're just there? Is it a Zen thing, really, at the end of it all? These and other questions could be answered in a future episode of The Imbalanced History of Rock and Roll. I don't know. Probably not. They continued to do their
2: thing, and they were lucky enough and talented enough and smart enough to be able to branch out and expand. I mean, Jerry Casal and Mark Mothersbaugh also worked with Tony Basil a lot over the years. At one point, Jerry and Tony were dating back in the early days. Of oh, De- I didn't know that. So, yeah, they hung out for a while and all these people ended up remaining friends and in contact and working together, even if things didn't work out romantically between them. Right. So it's pretty cool. And I feel like we're very lucky that all of those weird things happened within the Devo circle and the Devo timeline, because those things needed to happen for us to get Devo as we got Devo.
1: To get them at all, I think. And you know, I wonder sometimes, like, where's Fred Weber? What's he doing? Or Bob Lewis, you know? He was there. He was part of the whole thing. He's still with us. I'd love to hear from either of those guys. Wouldn't you? Wouldn't that be cool?
2: Oh, definitely.
1: Imbalancehistory@gmail.com. at gmail.com, a great way to get in touch with us, even if you're not a founding member of Devo. There's
2: so much more we could go on and on and on about with Devo. We could fill in all of the super, super tight details of the story that we just shared and do that. But it would take a long time. So we wanted to give you a really nice overview of who this brilliant band is and was and also... Give you a feel for what they're about and their whole philosophy, their whole ethos of why they did what they did. And hopefully that came across. And because I was a teenager when they were really getting going, I was listening to their music quite a bit and a big fan of this band. Ray, working in college radio, also probably played a lot of their music as well because they were very hot in the college circuit and the college scene. And so naturally, hearing a lot of their music, we thought we might try a five favorites ray what do you think shotgun
1: about- style like uh shotgun on the fly
2: right now yeah what do you say can you do it
1: i think i can i think i can wait a minute i sound like the little train that could. Train, train 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 i think the little I can. devo train that could <laughs> all, right, all right i'll tell you what do you have yours together <laughs> So, why don't we start with your Shotgun 5 favorite, Devo songs.
2: All righty, I will start. Number five, their cover of Secret Agent Man, one of the early songs that they record. And the way they just take that soul out of this song and mechanize it or homogenize it is brilliant. But it's still really fun and boppy and it makes you move. Number four. Their cover of the Rolling Stones, I Can't Get No Satisfaction. The way they de-rock and rolled that song is absolutely brilliant. And it's just fun to listen to. And go see the video of their performance on Saturday Night Live when they did it. Yep. It's all over. You can find it anywhere. Number three, Girl You Want. I love Soundgarden's cover of that, and I really like that song because it's still relevant today, just like most of their songs. Number two, Working in a Coal Mine. That's song's just so badass all the way through and just so well put together well, I've been
0: working in a cold night, cold
2: All-time favorite Devo song has not changed for decades, literally, and that is "Mongoloid." Number one, Ray, you've had the time to pen or scribe your five faves. Let's go and hear what you got to say.
1: I didn't change anything. We have some matches, I think, Marcus, and Vegas may be glad that they didn't take bets on this version of five favorites, shotgun as it may be. My number five is the first song you hear on the first album. It's Uncontrollable Urge. Yeah. My number four matches one of yours, Working in the Coal Mine, the Alan Toussaint Classic, Dundeevo style. My number three is that Stone Song Devo style, It's Satisfaction. You love it, I love it, and obviously the guys in Soundgarden love Girl You Want. It was Devo's version that made it automatic when I heard Soundgarden's version for me. And my number one Devo song, not matching you, is Jacko Homo, because we are Devo. We are not men. We are Devo. My number one.
2: a great list and of course there's so many songs you can choose and I think we had three in common there so
1: ding ding ding
2: Vegas would have been very unhappy with us if we would have thrown a bet in there last minute. They would have probably nullified it, so not
1: even worth the red tape. We wouldn't have gotten the words out before we'd have gotten a no on text. Well, we've finally done it, man. We've been doing this podcast almost five years, and we finally did the episode about Devo that we always have talked about. Feel good?
0: Yeah,
2: I like it very much he's not
1: kidding he's really not kidding or <laughs> exaggerating <laughs> he came this close my fingers are about half an inch apart to breaking out the special red hat and the yellow slicker for the taping of this episode but thankfully he kept it in the closet and uh, <laughs> for now it's going to have to stay in there but halloween is coming halloween is coming so.
3: yes it is
1: Thanks for joining us on this adventure all about the devolution of Devo on the Imbalance History Podcast. Brought to you by Crooked Eye Brewery in the heart of Hapra, pouring the cure for what ails you since 2014. Happy to have them along for the ride almost this whole time, man, almost all the five years. So that's a good thing that we have going with our friends there at Crooked Eye. Check them out. Go in, have a pint, have a good time. Till the next time we gather around the mics here in the Dark Duck Media Studios, that's going to do it for this episode about Devo. I'm Ray Coop.
2: I'm Marcus Goldman. This is the
1: Imbalance History of Rock and Roll. Mipsort, mips, maps, george.